Cool. Hello and welcome to the Into the Adultverse podcast once again. We've got another exciting interview episode coming up. Uh, On today's interview episode, we'll be interviewing Henry Peck. Henry is um, a pretty cool guy that we actually were introduced to off of LinkedIn, and we've been seeing this post for a while, so super, super cool to finally be talking to him. Uh, Henry has a ton of experience, um, but most recently he's been working at Johnson & Johnson in uh, the robotics and digital surgery department uh, as a clinical innovator. And his role is kind of uh, cross-disciplinary where he you know, touches on a lot of things, including a lot of product work. Um, he also went to Carnegie Mellon uh, where he studied uh, biomedical engineering as well as mechanical engineering. So we'll talk to him a little bit about that as well. Um, so yeah, without further ado, let's get this episode started. Cool. Welcome back, young kings, young queens, to the Into the Adultverse podcast. We're pleased to be back again today with another incredible guest. Um, Henry Peck, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I know Fwad and I have been really excited to talk to you about a bunch of different things, and you kind of overlap um, a couple of the things that we are personally very interested in, so uh, very excited to dive into that. So just to start, uh, could you just paint a picture of yourself for the audience and just tell us a bit about yourself and your journey so far? Absolutely. So I guess if we're painting a visual picture to start, I am uh, five foot seven. I've been told I have good hair. <laughs> I got brown eyes, brown hair. Like I mentioned, I usually like to rock a close beard, uh, but well trimmed. So I guess that's my visual picture. Uh, real picture <laughs> about my personality, I suppose, is a little more what we want to talk about. And, um, you know, I'm born born in New York, Long Island specifically. My family goes back on Long Island. My parents are both from Long Island, grew up in the same neighborhood, went to the same schools and college, um, and then ended up getting married. We moved to Maryland. And I have one younger brother. We grew up outside of D.C. Um, so him, myself, my two cousins that live very close on my mom's side, and our dogs all grew up really close to each other. So I'm a big family guy. One of the big things um, about me that drives a lot of the, you know, the way I make decisions, the way I think. Um, And I grew up with a very unique optical condition. I had a a series of corrective surgeries when I was younger. And through that experience, in addition to watching my father go through about 15 years in medical device and pharmaceutical sales, I was always deeply interested in the medical device and healthcare world. Uh, after figuring out that being a doctor wasn't the path I wanted to go, I was lucky to have a physician in the family um, who kind of helped me see that that was not the direction I wanted to go. I focused more on on engineering, you know, competencies of mine that were closer to the belt. And I went to Carnegie Mellon, studied mechanical and biomedical engineering, um, had some different interesting pivots in there, which I'm happy to go into. And uh, <laughs> I started as a mechanical engineer and I left as a mechanical engineer, but along the way, must have explored at least 10 different majors, minor combinations, two different master's degrees, a self-proposed master that I never ended up finishing, all this you know, fun stuff. And mm-hmm. um, after Carnegie Mellon, I joined, uh, joined Johnson & Johnson in their robotics and digital solutions group. And now I'm in San Francisco. Well, normally in San Francisco, currently for the quarantine back home in uh, Maryland with my family. I got stuck out here after a uh, wedding <laughs> in New Jersey and have not yet been able to make it back to the Bay. So uh, loving the family time, taking advantage of it. But yeah, it's a little bit about me. Awesome. Well, um, it's pretty insane. Cool. Yeah. I mean, like there's there's so much to dive into there. Uh, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about um, just sort of like your pre-university career and like what kind of like enticed you to go, go into mechanical engineering? Absolutely. Um, pre-university career, you know, I I was always interested in in building stuff, right? And how things worked, I suppose, was the way I, the way I looked at it. Um, 
whether it was a, a product or a system um, or just a, a business or a structure, I was always curious in the why. And when I was thinking about what to study, um, you know, I kept kind of honing in on, on, on I love my love of physics. And that was really my first, um, you know, dive into engineering, my first exposure. Uh, when I was a freshman in high school, I took a, an honors physics course and it was, you know, only, there was a small group of us. It was a big deal to be a ninth grader in honors physics in my high school. I know it's different everywhere you go, but for, for us, there were like four of us that got to do that. And I had this, this awesome teacher named Mr. Wu who ended up being my teacher the next year for AP physics. And then again, uh, for multivariable calculus and was just a guy that I always was going to for advice and, and mentorship. And his, his background was incredible. I mean, he had a, an engineering degree. He had years of service in Taiwan. He had a, you know, a doctorate. He had done classes he, a business at Wharton. And he just always kept coming back to the value of an engineering background and how that technical understanding will get you so far as a problem solver, as an innovator, um, as a professional, and as a person. So despite all my assorted interests, you know, I, I had a lot of passion in politics. I loved working with children and volunteering, very big in sports, and, and I did a lot of coaching. And um, I kept coming back to this idea of learning how technology worked and how it was going to you know, impact our world and using that as my launching off point. Uh, to get into the healthcare space, right? Regardless of what that role was going to look like, figuring out how the tech worked. So I understood everything. And once I understood you know, everything, I'm putting air quotes around it, everything, um, <laughs> sure, I had yeah. the capacity to understand things. Then I could go figure out, you know, how to make big change where I wanted. So that's how, you know, that's kind of how I, how I launched into engineering. And I was very fortunate uh, to be admitted to Carnegie Mellon and, you know, I actually didn't have a great first visit to Carnegie Mellon. I, I was a tour guide for school, so I like to tell this story. But it was just pouring down rain in Pittsburgh. I only knew Pittsburgh as a city with a bunch of sports teams that I didn't like, you know, growing up in New York and, and Maryland. Of course, Steelers. So, oh, of course, Steelers, Penguins, yeah, whatever it is. I just didn't like them. And, you know, when I went there, that first visit was not having it with the rain. And, and then I was ended up, you know, fortunate enough to get admitted. And I went back for an admitted student's weekend and just fell in love. Um, had an incredible overnight weekend host, met some great people, and saw a very challenging route for myself, which was not something I really felt in high school. I generally, not skated by, but you know, I didn't feel that same level of challenge that I was lucky to feel at Carnegie Mellon from my peers, from the institution as a whole, from the professors. So that was really what did it for me, was that, yeah, kind of that, that feeling that this is a place that's going to push me to be the best version of myself. And so you know, mm. making the decision to study technology and then making the decision to go to Carnegie Mellon to do that. I think we're two of the kind of the bigger, bigger things that I've done to become the person I am. Wow. It sounds like you had like a really colorful and full um, kind of like background story coming to coming up to where you are right now. Um, you did mention that you pivoted a bunch along the way. And I mean, one of the, I think, biggest things plaguing like the young people around our age is trying to figure out how best to navigate um, like just life in general and try and figure out who you are, um, who you really want to be, what you're passionate about, you know, things of this nature. So um, I would love if you could just kind of talk a bit more about how you pivoted and what made you realize that you wanted to pivot into this. Yeah, I think pivots are probably, probably the, the most unifying thread between all my experiences. I mean, there was a time that I thought I was going to be a politician and change healthcare that way. Um, oh, wow. There was a time I thought I, like, I was going to be a doctor and change healthcare that way. Um, and, you know, again, I always had this interest in healthcare and I did question it at times, you know, is this really what I want to do or am I just letting 
things that happened to me as a child drive the way I'm going to live my life. But I really did kind of continue to, to explore and challenge that assumption. And by challenging that assumption and forcing myself to go down different roads, I was able to confirm it in a way that has been extremely meaningful. I'll give you an example. When I was a freshman, um, after my first year of college, I was fortunate to uh, land a research position with uh, then professor Dr. Steve Collins, who is now at Stanford doing incredible work. So I want to give him a great shout out. Um, it was an absolutely incredible mentor and his lab was my first exploration into robotics um, and kind of in the direction that I'm in today. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to do that without that experience. But in parallel to working in Dr. Collins's lab, which, you know, just a, an a amazingly impactful experience learning from him and his team, I was also doing some freelance work for Duolingo. So if you guys are familiar with Duolingo, the language acquisition app, he's actually a yes, Carnegie Mellon startup. Yeah. No he way. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, started at Carnegie yeah. Mellon by uh, Severin Hacker and Luis Von On. And I'll tell you, if those aren't two entrepreneurs born with entrepreneurial names. I don't know who are Severin Hacker. I mean, that is, that's something right there. So, but yeah, they started that incredible company and I was doing some freelance, you know, just some light work for them, um, you know, in order to kind of explore a different rabbit hole. I had always loved education. I was always spending my summers coaching and I was uh, tutoring and volunteering and, and I loved working with youth. And I was like, you know, maybe this is my calling. This is my passion. Um, and I think like it confirmed two things for me, kind of pushing myself to do that in parallel. One, I really do have a genuine interest in the medical, medical technology space and the healthcare space. And that is something that, sure. you know, I, I'm comfortable pursuing and pushing. But two, it doesn't have to be my only interest. And it doesn't have to be that thing that defines you. And I think so often young people, you know, we see all this like find your narrative, find your voice stuff. But that doesn't necessarily mean denying and suppressing other parts of your identity. You don't have to have, you know, one thing, Henry Peck, the healthcare guy, right? That's not how people work. And I really um, began to open myself up to that possibility and accept that and, and celebrate that, right? I could be Henry Peck, someone who loves working in healthcare, but spends his time volunteering and working with children on the side and also is a huge New York Rangers fan and loves spicy food and tasting bourbon, right? Like I'm allowed to be that kind of person. <laughs> And I encourage young people to, to do that too. So explore and challenge your assumptions, sure. Pivot if it's not right, but um, you know, don't suppress parts of your identity. And, and I guess you know, that was the, that's a, just kind of the, the, the short of it. In college, you know, the majors and programs were all forced to choose from. I've got, you know, could go on and on about that. But yeah, I'm always, always a strong advocate of pivoting around in there to figure out what path is right for you. Man, I, like, like there's so many things on that that I want to touch on. Like, I just oh think God, it was too. super, super cool how you like mentioned the exploration phase, especially because something we've talked about recently on this podcast and it reminds me of this is like the idea of being like a generalist versus like a specialist and like how in today's world, we've kind of like started rewarding specialists a lot more because, you know, things are so competitive and like there's so many niche fields of like knowledge. Right. And like when you're sure. a specialist, you get to like, you know, deep dive, you, you know, you can add a lot more value, but I think like what, what happens is like people get pressured into doing these things that, you know, they might be very passionate about, but they have other aspects of their identity that they just start ignoring. Right. And I love how you mentioned that, like, you know, don't suppress parts of your identity that you like, like don't suppress things that you like doing. Like that's not what you should be doing in order to like find your true calling or whatever. Like, you know, um, there's this actually like pretty, pretty popular YouTuber that I follow. Um, his name's Brandon something, but, um, he's actually a software engineer at Google. And he's also like a rapper and he has this theory called like the multi dream theory or something like that. And he's like, you know, like I, well, growing up, I wanted to be a software engineer and I wanted to be a rapper, 
And I wasn't going to let like both those dreams be exclusive, you know, like I can code by to five and I can rap, you know, I can go to studios, I can like produce beats, like whatever it is. And so I think it's super, super cool how you touched on that. Cause yeah, like, especially as somebody who has a ton of varied interests as well, like that's something I've struggled with a lot. I don't know if you had other thoughts, Damien. Yeah. Oh man. Like now I have thoughts on what you said too. Um, <laughs> we just briefly though um it's i mean like especially for the people who can relate to that like you you have a bunch of varied interests there's a bunch of things you really want to try out um one thing it's important to keep in mind is that you can do anything but you can't do everything and i think especially for people who are uh, particularly more motivated they can wind up really stretching themselves thin um in an effort to try and test out uh, test the waters for all these different things that they're interested in um, and um, kind of speaking on what you were saying, Henry, um, the way that you phrased it, I love how it's such an active thing. Um, you know, a lot of people, I feel like a lot of people really frame that in a way that's kind of passive, like you define yourself, right? You define who you are. But I like to think of it like we, we're like a ball of clay, you know, and it's up to us to mold ourselves. And that's a really active process. You know, we craft who we want to be. And those pivots are intentional moves that you can make, um, kind of just fine tuning that that ball of clay that you are. Um, and you know, just I think it's important to keep it in an active sense so that we're constantly moving forward in an attempt to keep discovering those are the niche pieces of ourselves. Um, but so through um, your extensive experience so far, um, what was the biggest failure that you encountered or lesson that you kind of learned along the way? Yeah. Biggest failure. Wow. First of all, I want to say, I love the way you guys, you know, just your, your mindset and your approach to things. I can tell this is going to be a great conversation. Very excited. <laughs> um, I gotta say it's a biggest failure. Wow. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty adamant. You know, I, I recently talked about this um, in a LinkedIn post, but I consider my my attempt and and like kind of blinded drive that I needed to be a mechanical engineer in order to be successful with engineering was one of my kind of failures, and it was a failure on two fronts. One, frankly, I was not good at it. Um, I think anyone who's an engineer, anyone who's an engineering can tell you there is a difference between a good engineer and a great engineer, right? And sometimes you just know it. Um, I think you see it a lot in software engineering, but in mechanical engineering with design work, right? I think you really do see some people, it just clicks and they were just like, they were born to do it and they get it. I was not one of those people. I learned it and I was competent, um, but there were little things about it. It just wasn't a good fit. And I made little jokes about it. Like, you know, I have small stubby hands and I couldn't use the tools very well. And my <laughs> eyes hurt when I look at a computer for too long. It hurts my neck. Like, all these, all these different little things. But fundamentally, being a mechanical design engineer was not right for me. And I took many attempts at it to make it right for me. And I whiffed. Um, and I had an internship when I was a sophomore with a company called Exobionics, um, actually going to be in, you know, up, in, up in Berkeley around where you're, where you're going this summer, Fawad. But oh, yeah. uh, that was, it was over in Richmond. And I entered as a, as a mechanical design intern, essentially. I was working on um, exoskeletons for spinal cord injury, stroke um, rehabilitation. So those survivors, we rig them up with an exoskeleton and it changes the physical therapy experience such that physical therapists aren't struggling to manage the rehab and the rehab itself is more effective and more empowering of an experience for the pilot or patient in the suit. Um, and I love the technology. And I got there and I was immediately tasked with heavy engineering level work. 
And I just, I knew, right? That was where it really hit me. Like I could not keep up that charade for long. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I did not do a great job on my first project. I, quite frankly, it's one of the only th- times that I can look at my professional career and say like, I did a bad job on that. Um, mm-hmm. Like if I were my manager, I would not have been happy with my performance there. And that was a tough mm-hmm. thing, tough thing to reconcile. I mean, look, I, you know, I worked hard in school. I took a lot of classes and I pushed myself very hard. I'll talk about that you know, if we want to go into it. But I mean, there was one point I was taking like, we call them units. So 70, 73, 74 units, uh, you divide that by three and get credits. So, you know, we are, we're, we're north of, we're like 25 credits um, for one semester. I was, I was a hard worker in college. And I thought that that would translate to success in this field. And it just didn't, right? It just wasn't, I wouldn't say it's a fault of the school. It just wasn't right for me. And I think what I learned from that was like, there's always, as you know, we talk about pivots, but there's, there's something that I was missing, right? It wasn't a reflection of me just being bad, right? I wasn't bad at everything. This just wasn't the right thing for me to be doing. And I spent the time when I was at that internship, you know, focusing in on a mission, a new mission of figuring out what in this world, you know, I love this technology. I love these people. I love this company. What can I do to figure out how I can maximize my contributions to their mission? And for me, that was exploring new things in design, um, human factors, usability, and eventually product and marketing. Um, And I spent the majority of that internship, sure, doing some mechanical design work and collaborating, but more on the blue sky ideation side. I was working with now their, who who was then became their lead product manager and their director of marketing, um, and really shifted the focus of my internship from confirming that I can be a mechanical design engineer, which I failed at, to figuring out what Henry can bring to a company like this and where I can add value. And that was a really, um, that was a really important summer in my career journey because I did that and I explored from there, but I never really looked back. I mean, that was the, the type of job that I realized was right for me and where I would get to maximize my contributions to a company. Man, I love that idea of value add. That's something we've touched on so much. Like, yeah, like, you know, at the end of the day, how I like to think of it is like, you know, I could be an engineer and I, you know, I could contribute to that field, but at the end of the day, I'm taking a chair for someone that probably could contribute way more. And I'm also not adding as much value as I could. I'm not making the amount of impact I can because I'm, I'm underutilizing some of my other skills. Right. And so it's just about like kind of solving the optimization problem for, you know, how can my skills and this company's goals like align as closely as they can. Right. And it's not a black and white thing. I mean, after I did that internship, my immediate next two internships were in venture capital and manufacturing. So all within, all within the industry, but I did not allow that to be the end of my exploration. Like I found something I'm good at, cool, done. No, no chance. I found something I like, but there's still so many things I hadn't seen or explored. My goal with university and internships was to cross as many things off the list as I could. You only get to be in university once. It's a privilege to be a college student and have those three, four, five, however many years of essentially unquestioned exploration and naivety. You can walk into any room as a college student, say, I have no idea what I'm doing and people will want to help you. And that's not something that you always get. And more or less, do you have the opportunity or the, the freedom to do? as a, you know, a working professional. Um, you have to carve those opportunities out in the professional world, which is a little different. But when you are a college student, you have kind of that, that hall pass to say like, yeah, I did this, but I want to explore that. Teach me how to do this. I want to learn how to do that. Um, 
And, and there is, you know, that is something that I think sometimes we are encouraged not to do because it's like, you know, get software engineering position at this company. So you're eligible for Google software engineering so that you can get job at this. Like it's very, it feels very linear sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I really want, you know, people, you can take advantage of all that naivety has to offer. Mm-hmm. You touched on so many good points there. Um, it's definitely something we've um, touched on before too, I believe in our networking episode. But um, yeah, one thing I think we really want to keep driving through this podcast is really the value of how unique of a position we really are as students still. Um, and I think we've all seen this in our own lives, how it's astounding how much people are really willing to go out of their way just to help out a college student that's kind of just straight from the path a bit that's trying to figure things out still. And, you know, as long as you're willing to help yourself out, people are willing to go that extra mile for you. Um, and another thing being, you know, it's, I, I love that you didn't fall prey to that sunk cost bias. You know, you went in with engineering on your mind, you tried it out, you did your thing, but you didn't do it in a shallow way. You really gave it all you could, you got and you realized like, okay, well, this really isn't for me. I did my best at it, but let me see what else is out there. Like, I'm not really confined to this path. There's so many more uh, things out there that I could really excel in um, that, and this necessarily, uh, this isn't necessarily one of those things, but you, you didn't give up. You didn't just give up there and think, okay, well, like I wasted all this time getting to this point. Now I got to stick to this path. Yeah, I don't believe in wasted time. I, I am very happy to have an engineering degree. I think it's offered me the technical foundation I need to do what I do effectively. I could not do the role that I have now, let alone any of the roles that I've had without my engineering background. And I found the way to bring in those other things that I wanted to learn about, whether it was on personal time or formally through university, um, into that fold. But I, yeah, I completely agree with the way you phrased it, Damien. It is, it's, not, it's not just, you know, like, do this, and because I've put two years into it, that's my path now forever, right? Mm-hmm. You are just, you're so dynamic as a college student. And even as a young professional, um, I, you know, take advantage of it. So I'm getting a lot of themes of like, you know, exploration and pivot and stuff like that. But one thing I'm curious about is like, what are, what were some of the constant habits and like, you know, skills that you built that kind of served you throughout, um, you know, like your journey throughout university in particular, like, is, you know, things were changing, you were going to new fields, but like, I'm sure there were like some keystone habits and like keystone things that you do that you believe like, kind of like let you go through that change and come out on the other side, like much more educated, much more explored, much more of a professional in your, in your career. Yeah, one of my favorite expressions, um, and it's kind of a, a piece of guiding light I keep with me, is how you do anything is how you do everything, right? I don't believe in being, you know, like lazy some days and hardworking other days, and, you know, you do something. Like, I don't believe in being able to half-ass something um, and then consider yourself a really hardworking person. And that's not meant to be a blunt attack at somebody who has lazy days, hell, we all have days where we just don't feel like doing stuff. But what I mean is in the bigger, in the grand scheme of things, the way you approach little things that that don't feel like they have the same magnitude really shows a lot about who you are as a person. So I think the way that you prepare and the way that you um, care about all the things that are on your plate reflects how you're going to perform in the big moments. Um, and for me, I took that to mean like, I, I need to give everything the benefit of the doubt and the full due diligence, um, before 
I just move on. And whether that was with, you know, when I was in college, I was working multiple jobs, both through the university. I would, you know, I had external internships, research in, you know, and multiple semester overloads. And that was really because it, it wasn't to, you know, maximize my resume. It was because I believed that, you know, if I didn't give research the attention that it needed, I'd never know if I liked research. Um, mm -hmm. And I wouldn't get the value out of research. So the way I approached my research, even though being a researcher ended up not being the route I wanted to go, the way I approach that will show a lot about my character to the people who then want to see me approach industry, right? And so I'm, I'm a firm believer that like, you know, in that theory, like if you make your bed every morning and you build those habits that you're going to take, you know, a strong stance and have self-discipline, um, it will carry over into your professional life. And you see it in the little moments, right? With people who I think sometimes don't espouse that philosophy. And, you know, when the little things slip or when, um, you know, when, when there's a, a big moment and there's a, there's a mess up, it's just sometimes directly attributable to that mindset isn't there. Um, and, I, and I'm really big on like my own mindset being the in control of what I do. I, I, you know, every day I wake up, um, it's my day to live. And, uh, and I'm very, very intentional, I think, with how I, how I allocate my time and energy to make sure that I'm maximizing uh, the opportunities that are in front of me. So that's definitely been one of my consistent threads. Um, and then I think the other thing is being true to myself. Um, you know, a lot of times people, you know, people have their, their assumptions and uh, they're always going to kind of want to project uh, the way that they think onto the world. I think that I have a lot of strong opinions and I have, I have a lot of, um, a lot of notions about how I should behave and the way I carry myself in the world. And it's very important to me that I am living up to the standards I set for myself, not, you know, necessarily like, like aptitude and altitude, like what I'm achieving, but more that I can go to bed happy with, you know, the decisions I'm making and the person I am. So I'm, I've always been very, again, intentional about, making sure that what, what I'm doing on the outside is reflecting how I feel on the inside. I don't really want to have that dissonance between like what I'm thinking and who I am in here versus what others are seeing. And I love that. I love that. Like the whole theme of, of just like being intentional. That's something I've talked about so much. Like, like being intentional about your life is like, in my opinion, like the only real way to live it because you know, like when you, when you're not intentional, you're not like, like people have this idea that when, when, when they're too intentional about things, they give up freedom. But really what you're doing is you're allowing yourself to choose what you're free to do. You know what I mean? And especially like in stoicism and things like that, like we had an episode uh, on, on stoic philosophy, but like, you know, getting up in the morning and thinking like, you know, this is my day. I get to choose what goes on in this day. Like that's mm -hmm. such a key underpinning concept to stoicism. So I'm like so happy you talked on that. We definitely picked the right yeah. guest for this, for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my God. You're so full of life. Love. I honestly love hearing you talk. Like you're so full of personality. It's, it's such a pleasure to see. Um, I, I think for me, the way that I think about it is, and it's, it definitely echoes what you said. Um, but it's with what Aristotle said, right? Um, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence therefore isn't an act, but a habit. And it's just, I mean, like in, hearing what you said, Henry, like it's very evident that how foundational your mindset is in building up yourself as a successful individual. Yeah, you guys have the uh, the quotes in the philosophical philosophical uh, 
points to put on it. I, I just, uh, I spit it out a little bit, but I, I love, I love that you guys are so aligned to that way of thinking. It's uh, I think it's very powerful and it's something that again, anyone can, anyone can take the steps to make themselves more intentional with their time. And, you know, once you do that, I think you really find a lot of control in your life. Yeah. So, that's it, the most empowering part. Like anyone can do it. It's not just like something for like, you know, like philosophy majors and things like that. Yeah. It's something anyone can do. So yeah, David. Exactly. So um, kind of like in that same vein, um, being intentional with your time, um, especially you as someone who seems like a really busy person, um, in those moments where you feel overwhelmed or just unfocused or just have kind of tempor- temporarily like just lost your focus for whatever reason, what kind of strategies do you implement to try and get yourself back on track or just kind of help regain that focus just generally? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm definitely not like the most, you know, hyper laser focused type person that isn't just, that's just not really how I work. Um, I work long and I work hard, but I do need, you know, my little gaps. I need my small breaks. Um, I growing up had a lot of um, attention issues and, and that was something I was very fortunate to have family members um, who supported who supported getting me the help that I needed, you know, not allowing it to just be written off as bad behavior when I was young and helping me build the right, the right strategies and habits to slow myself down, refocus internally, bring myself to a, uh, you know, a more measured um, state. And I think sometimes, you know, I, when I feel overwhelmed, uh, a lot of times it's just with all the things that are moving around me at once. And the role that I'm in now, I have a lot of, a lot of moving parts, we're part of a larger company that I've, than I've ever been in before. And, you know, with that comes an unbelievably incredible set of individuals and teams and resources, but it's also a lot to track and manage. And so some, there are times that I admittedly feel overwhelmed um, between that and, and personal life and things like that. And so for me, a lot of it is just kind of taking a step back and, and refocusing myself, taking the tasks one at a time. Um, I've recently become a big Trello person. I don't know if you guys use Trello, but I love Trello. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. I big big shout out to Atlassian on that one. That's a great product. But um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Trello has really helped me organize my day and my life. So one of the things I love about it is is just you know how multiple boards can be linked for me. So I have a you know a day to day board modeled off of you know just the general Kanban of like what's being done what needs to be done and, and what is already done, helping me kind of progress tasks through my day and incubating tasks, whether they are work-related, um, you know, networking-related, personal life, social life, um, you know, spiritual wellness, mental health, you know, things like that, kind of tagging them in the right way. And I can see how I am tracking against broader goals that I've set on a different board for myself and how like the tasks I'm doing in a day, you know, if I see like, wow, I did a lot of errands today, but I really didn't give any time to my mental health. Um, that to me indicates an issue and an imbalance. So Trello has been a really nice visual representation. Gotta ask, did, a we, lot of times, did we make the Trello? Yeah. Did, did we make the Trello? Did, <laughs> oh, did this, this oh, the pod? Absolutely, of course. <laughs> yeah, this is awesome, happening, okay. happening right now. I can't, can't wait to advance it you know, a little bit later. It's always a good awesome. feeling. I, I love that. I love that kind of that brain dumping activity. I think a lot of times mm-hmm. when I get myself overwhelmed or unfocused, it's because I have a lot swirling up here, like in my head, and I don't get it down on paper. Um, and Trello is a great tool to just, you know, you quickly like make a note, throw it on there. And now it's out of your head and it's in front of you, um, which really helps me kind of visually understand, like, what do I need to do? How am I spending this next minute? Um, I've been meaning to try calendar blocking. I know some people that are really big on that where they like put something for every hour kind of of the day. Um, 
most of my hours are kind of spoken for with work right now, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a cool concept. So I think that might be my next exploration to kind of further mitigate the feeling of being overwhelmed or distracted. I think it's such an underrated thing too. Um, people don't really realize how much cognitive bandwidth is being taken up by all those thoughts swirling around in your head. Um, and yeah, exactly. Like with what you're doing or things like, um, I mean, taking an hour out of your day, maybe just like do some meditation if you can afford that time. Uh, what was it that you said, Fouad? Like if you can't take an hour, you need like three or something of like that. You need like that the whole hour. Yeah, so like, I, I think I think the quote is a meditation quote. It's like, um, you know, some people complain, or if you're complaining that you don't have ten minutes to meditate in a day, you should be meditating for two hours, or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, it's something like that. Um, journaling too. Are you uh, are you a proponent of that? Do you do that yourself? I do it for me. I, I do it in. I actually do it in Trello as well. So I make a mm. like a list for every for every week of a month. I make a board and then I just save the board. Um, and that's how I do it. I would say I, I started out by pushing myself like, I was like, I'm gonna do it every day, 30 days, and then it's gonna be a habit because that's how everything works, right? Um, I don't know, it didn't, it didn't, I didn't feel the need to do it every day. I like it okay. for a few different things. I'm not the kind of person who when I'm like angry or upset or super happy, I feel the need to like write it in a journal. You know, that's not why I use the journal. I think I've used the journal more as a time to write down profound and important things that happen that I want to reflect on. As an example, um, I unfortunately have a, a great aunt on my mother's side um, who is unwell and she has, um, she has terminal cancer essentially. And I had a, a, a lunch with her in New York last summer where we really just got to see each other as people, you know, which is something I think a lot of people never really talk about enough with their, with their family. Like it's a really interesting thing to realize that the adults in your family, and I'm very fortunate to have a lot of family like that, um, but they're people too. They went through similar experiences as we did. They grew up, right? They went through school, they were young people. Uh, and then they, and then they became the people they are. So kind of understanding the life experiences of someone that way, um, as if they were kind of like a buddy, not, you know, an authority figure or a guardian or like a caregiver, I think, really changed a little bit of the way I think about my relationship with those loved ones in my life. And so, mm. you know, after that conversation, that was something I wanted to put down in my journal. Um, so, you know, for me, it's now moved from more of like a, an as needed type thing and, you know, to reflect on big moments rather than just like an everyday thoughts and feelings. Um, but again, I'm a proponent of, of the tools. I'm just not a proponent of any rigid model for this kind of stuff. So, if it works for you and you're feeling like it works for you, I say explore it and go down that hole. Like try doing it every day, try doing it once a week, try doing it as needed and you'll see what works. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think, you know, it's important for people to take, I think Bruce Lee said it, like he, he said like, you know, learn from, from what, like what the masters have done, um, implement it into your own strategy and add what is uniquely your own, you know, like, and, and just like advocating for, for, for not like a rigid, like you mentioned, like step-by-step -step procedure on everything, like, taking, like yeah. take, taking the time to explore things and like figuring out what works with you and what doesn't work with you because not everything's going to work with you for sure. So glad you touched on that. Um, so yeah. sort of pivoting the conversation a little bit, um, I wanted to hear a little bit more about, you know, we, we talked a little bit about your, uh, you know, your university experiences and like, you know, your ups and downs through, through like pivoting and, and finding out like, you know, your, your degree requirements and all that. But uh, I want to talk a little bit uh, about something I, you know, I have a huge personal interest in because I'm graduating next year. But 
um, sort of how you approach graduation, like sort of setting yourself up for opportunities after you graduated and what you did immediately right after you graduated. Cause I know you did found um, a startup coherent uh, and you were a head product manager there as well. So yeah, talk, talk me through that process. Yeah. So I guess to, uh, to kind of move a little bit through it. So I actually founded coherent. Um, I co-founded coherent out of a, a hackathon. We spun technology out of there and we had a really cool product in the cochlear implant rehabilitation space. So we were using uh, a digital platform to deliver real-time data and metrics back to an audiologist who is adjusting the settings on a patient's cochlear implants. And for those who are unfamiliar, cochlear implants are two-piece neuroprosthetic transmitters with one uh, surgically implant, one piece surgically implanted at the auditory nerve in the brain, um, and then one receiver outside of the ear. And essentially it bypasses the ear. Um, you know, for those who are deaf, they can't hear through that canal. So it bypasses and sends that signal directly to stimulate the nerve. Um, so we were improving that rehabilitation process. Think of it like if you asked a blind individual um, what color they were looking at, they really wouldn't have the answer. And that was kind of how we saw the cochlear implant space evolving, where there were more and more, um, there was more and more of a burden placed on patients to be providing that information, that critical information back to their provider uh, or their caregiver. And it just didn't add up. So we were working on something in that space. Um, we ended up shutting down that venture in my senior year of college. So we had founded that when I was a junior out in, uh, in the Bay Area. Um, and then when I was a senior, I was considering staying for my master's degree. Um, I was on pace to finish my bachelor's about a year early. And the plan was to finish it you know, in parallel to my master's. So complete both of them in four years. Um, one of the things about me, though, is I, I, I don't really take, I don't think anything is a coincidence in terms of, or just happens randomly, right? I love to take what life throws at you and, and explore it. Um, and an opportunity came up to spend my senior year, or my senior fall, continuing to work at Intuitive Surgical, where I'd been working that summer. Um, and so I stayed out in the Bay Area, wasn't taking classes and was working. So that shifted my academic trajectory back a semester. Um, so I would have needed to return in the fall you know, a fifth year fall, quote unquote, to complete that master's degree because I took that semester off. I came back my senior spring, was planning to do it. And after a couple of weeks, I, you know, I won't go, I won't go through that whole process, but there was a lot of, uh, a lot of exploration that was done both with myself, my family, um, my mentors, where I just really was ready to go into industry. Um, and the work that I wanted to do existed more readily in industry. I saw more value in going into industry now and if I wanted advanced degree, uh, pursuing something a little different down the line, as opposed to a master's in engineering. Um, and that was how I made that decision. So here I am in essentially April of my senior year of college, deciding that no longer am I going back for a, uh, for a master's degree, I'm going to pursue a full-time job. And right out of school, um, I took a job with a startup company that was spinning a new robotic technology out of a research lab at Johns Hopkins. And um, after two months of working at that company, so, you know, May, June, around July, um, things went south and I ended up leaving. Um, and after two months, I was jobless out of school uh, and I really couldn't believe it. You know, that was a that was a big, a big like week. I, I went home. I didn't really think much about it. And then six days later, I kind of woke up like I have no job and I'm 22 um, and I'm at home and I don't know what I'm going to do. But, you know, I think this kind of talk, you know, touches on something I know you guys have talked a lot about, you know, the power of networking, right? And I'm a firm believer networking is an activity you do before you need a job. If you're networking when you need a job, it's too late. So mm -hmm. you network 
because you want to build a community of advocates, mentors, friends, and people that can lend you that help when you need it. And I was very fortunate that I put in the work all the way back from my freshman year through my senior year of college to build that strong network. Um, and so I was not jobless for very long in, uh, you know, about four short weeks, I was um, offered this position with then Oris Health, now part of Johnson & Johnson's Robotics and Digital Solutions Division, um, from colleagues that I had, you know, had established good relationships with in the past. Um, they actually sought me out uh, when I, you know, went out there to interview. It was a great fit, and I was on the plane at the end of, uh, end of August, early September. That's awesome. Yeah. Like, love that you said that. Like, networking is like a long-term game. Like, people look at it as like a, I network for a referral. I network to like get to know this person so that they can tell me about this job. But like, that's not what networking is. You know, networking is relationship building. I'm like, you know, it's the same way at looking at like, you know, making friends. Like, you don't make friends so you're not lonely tonight. You make friends so you get to know somebody and so you're friends with them. You know what I mean? Like, and that's how I look at like people who like try and get like, you know, a, a, refer, a referral from like a networking opportunity. Like, yeah, like imagine like going out and like meeting somebody to be their friend, just to be their friend for like two days. Like that's not a thing. Nobody does that, right? It's a relationship you're building. And so, yeah, like super, super glad. And like, you know, obviously it was going to work out with you because you, you spent like four years doing that. And like the, <laughs> the, the value of your network, like, you know, just like compounds over time. It's one of those things that like your, your value just becomes more evident as you, as it grows, right? Incomparable. Yeah. I don't think there's anything I would say that I no no experience or, or job or position or class could even stack up to the importance that my network has played in my education and development in my growth opportunities. And of course in the um, positions and, and career that I now have. So um, investing in your network is the best investment you can make. You heard it here first, folks. You know, that's, that's what networking <laughs> is all about, right? Um, you want to jump into product, Fwad? Let's talk about Yeah, about yeah, that. for sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, we've kind of come full circle. Now we're at your, your current full-time <laughs> job. Um, and, you know, as somebody who's really interested in product and, like, you know, maybe product from a little bit of a different sense in, in, the, in the sense that I work more in, like, software and things like that. But, um, you know, product is such a wide space, and there's so much that goes mm -hmm. into product. Uh, but I think it's a common theme for a lot of engineers, especially now to, you know, like sort of be thinking about these questions. And I think it's a super positive thing because, you know, who wants code monkeys? Like you want people who are thinking <laughs> about customers. You want the people who are thinking about like the considerations of the products that they're building. Right. And so, yeah. Um, why don't you give us like a little bit of a summary of what, what you're currently doing at Johnson and Johnson, formerly ours, and um, talk a little bit about, you know, how some of the skills you had as an engineer translated to you working in product and why you love working in product. I know it's a Absolutely. lot to talk about, but feel free to take as long as you want. <laughs> oh man, no, it's all, all things that I love doing. Um, so, I mean, working in, working in the space I work in now, I'm very fortunate to, to have found this group within this company. So our group uh, is called Clinical Innovation. It includes our, our product management and our strategic marketing, as well as what we call our clinical engineering. So think like technical product management. Um, just in our world, it's, it's a little different because we also own a lot more of the product development process than say like a typical associate product manager or some type of role like that. Um, in medical device world, there is, there's a very defined life cycle that includes a lot of things on the back end that need to be done in order to get technology into the market. It's not just like you build it, you, know, you, you, make, you make the idea for it, you build it, you release it, maintain it. The release and maintenance part of like what would be the traditional software life cycle in the medical device world, the 
validation and the regulatory pathways and all that adds a tremendous amount of work. Um, something that I can't overstate enough that, that really differentiates healthcare and med device and, and those types of fields from traditional product development. So um, in our world, that is, that is kind of a, a big part of how our team functions. We are embedded throughout research and development uh, to help identify those value propositions at the early stage. Like what does the customer need? How do we turn that into a guiding light for the engineering team? How do we define the strategy around what we're building um, and then translate all the feedback that we're going to collect, user research, key opinion leader feedback, usability testing, and human factors evaluations, and drill that into the solution embodiment. Um, and then, of course, figuring out how this technology is going to get from you know, the prototype phase to the product-ready phase um, through all of those back-end logistics that I mentioned. Um, that's a lot of what we do. And how we function and live. So one of the things I really enjoy about it is that symbiotic relationship between R&D and your true like marketing folks and then where we live kind of at that intersection. Uh, speaking both of those languages and then bringing in the language or the voice of the customer um, to kind of complete that triangle. And, and I like to say like, you know, I take this from our company, but our role is really the champion of the customer. Um, we are their voice at the table, you know, how they're going to do things with our products and, and what they need our products to do in order to deliver on the value we're trying to create. So getting to collaborate with the brilliant engineers that we have on our team, and I mean brilliant, the smartest engineers I've ever worked with, hands down at this company. Um, I think one of the things that I really enjoy, again, about having that engineering background is I, I get things that maybe your traditional marketers don't get, right? I understand when the team is talking about robotics and control systems. I understand how mechanical design timelines and turnarounds work with long lead time parts, manufacturing constraints, things like that. And it helps me better inform the business facing teams of what's going on in the technical world. And it helps me better translate what we're seeing on the customer front to things that our engineering team can use and, and you know, can, can view as actionable in order to deliver on what we want to see for the customer. So um, that's a, you know, just a, a, a smidge of what I love about this position and, and working in product very broadly. Um, and I think a little bit about what makes it unique in, um, in the healthcare world. Well, yeah, no, really, really great perspective. Like, you know, as somebody more in like the software industry rather than like the mechanical industry and like the, the, the devices industry, um, so many of what you, so much of what you said is like instantly translatable. Like, you know, the things around, like just the fact that engineers just trust you a lot more, you know, like, because you can speak to them on their language. And like, that's something that like, you know, is important in any job, but especially in a job where you interact with so many stakeholders, like being able to speak to somebody at their language, you know, at their skill level, at their wavelength is so, so important to relationship building. And like, you know, that translates into networking as well, but like, you know, on a more practical level, like when you're trying to assemble a team to do something, and you can't talk to particular people on that team about their expertise, then you're not going to have them on board with what you do. You know, it's going to be so yeah. much harder for them to con for you to convince them, for you to like, you know, like hear their needs out, you know, convey those needs to other stakeholders, you know, make sure that they can work together with other stakeholders. That's so important. And that's something that really, really interests me about, you know, the world of product in general. Yeah. And I would tell any student that's interested in product in terms of like what you should think about, regardless of what background you have, if you want to get into product, 
the the thing that I my boss has said this to me, and I've heard it, you know, ring true across all industries. Whether you're going to be a B two B or B two C product manager, whoever it's going to be, if you're building a technology product, I think the most important thing you need to maintain is trust with your engineering teammates. If you don't have their trust, like they are going to send, you know, you need to be able to go to meetings on that team's behalf and speak about the tech. You need to be able to take that technology to users and competently represent what it does. And you need to be able to bring feedback and, and work and learnings from the business back to the product in order to help them do their jobs better. So if you lose that trust or you don't build it effectively, you will, it will be directly reflected um, in the quality of your product and the way that you function on that team will be significantly um, hit by not having that trust. So I incomparably value the trust of the engineers on my team and, you know, across all the subsystems that I work on. So I uh, really, really agree with what you're saying there about speaking their language, but it's, I think it's so much deeper than that. It's, you know, becoming a functional member of that team essentially where yes, you are not an engineer necessarily you're by trade in that role, but you are a member of that team and you rise and sink with that team's success and failure. So having that mutual bi-directional trust is so important. Man, I think it's also just like such a great fit for you. Cause like, as you know, as, as you can see from this conversation, folks, like you're just such a well-spoken person, you know, you're able to create those relationships and your personality is super vibrant. So like, I can definitely see how that, how that translates to skills on the job and like, man, like, I hope that one day I can like, you know, be able to connect with people on the same level that you do. That's, that's, that's I think you're amazing. well, I think you're well on your way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say quickly, like, as a non-technical person, like listening to this, um, one of the things, the, the really big points of value that I'm able to really derive from this, even though I may not understand some of the jargon being thrown around, is um, the value really of becoming that kind of specialized generalist, right? Um so product is an excellent case study in bringing together two different kind of areas, two different fields like marketing and R&D, like you said, right? Um, and building a symbiotic relationship between that. And in, being, in doing so, you're able to be kind of bilingual in both of those things. And having that technical background helps inform um, the marketing. Having the marketing helps inform like the technical um, and et cetera, et cetera, which really goes to show, you know, um, we generalists are kind of penalized in uh, like kind of in today's uh career world but i think there's an excellent market for a specialized generalist um so you know keep exploring those interests and see how you can find a symbiotic relationship between those things absolutely and i think every team and, and every product manager can be built a little bit differently and of course it varies mm -hmm. based on the industry but you know i like i said i'm, I'm much more of a technical product manager. I work very closely with R&D and I tackle a lot of things that live in that gray area between, you know, a, a customer, customer notices or a customer feels a type of way about something, but it really is a, a technical problem that a marketer wouldn't necessarily be able to bite off. But there are product individuals that live much more at the brand management strategy side of the, you know, the, and they live a little bit more on the business end of things as well. And that's, you know, I think more of your, like your product marketing folks a rose by any name, right? I mean, there's just so many names for this field and, and what people do, but I think finding like what you like across that entire customer experience. Um, there are some really great resources out there about kind of early career development for a PM. And one of the things I love the most about, um, about some of those is that they all emphasize the importance of seeing the whole customer experience of something. Um, 
not just you know getting super deep in the tech or super deep on the marketing or super deep on the the business or the pricing or the legal right it's being able to see things from that kind of scope in and helicopter your way out and then go deep where you need to go deep uh, depending on the need in your specialty for sure um uh, i think we'd like to pivot the conversation to some of your other interests as well but uh, before we before we get off the topic of product um you know, it seems like it's a really great fit, but I'm sure there's, there's things about the job that you don't like. So tell, tell me a little bit about like, you know, what are things about being a, or being in product that you don't like and that, um, how, how, have you built strategies to kind of like, uh, combat that? Okay. Um, so I think, Hmm. I think I don't like, I think sometimes with product, um, the role can be a little ambiguous. And what I mean by that is like, you know, you're not really the owner of, every, of, of like a thing. You know, you are responsible, again, for kind of this end-to-end -end experience and you're very involved in the voice of customer and things like that. But at the end of the day, you aren't the one building the technology generally, right? It's not your hands making it. It's not your fingers coding it. So sometimes like getting that alignment and that buy-in between like what you're thinking in your head and what you want to see in the product and accepting that, you know, you can provide that direction and that input and that strategy and that vision, but you aren't going to be the one that actually makes the solution embodiment. I think for people that are, you know, come more from that engineering or that maker mindset, that can be a little frustrating. And sometimes for me, you know, there have been moments where I, I, I think I may have done something differently or, or I would have wanted to be more involved in that actual design, iteration, build process. And that's why I say again, like you've got to trust that the engineers on your team are, are, are doing the right thing. Um, vice versa, they trust you to be providing them the right direction. So I think that has been one thing that's, um, you know, it's been a challenge. I think another challenge also just the larger the company you get, right, the more cooks in the kitchen. So when you're, a, if you're a, at a small startup of 10 people, there's likely a product manager who's responsible for voice of customer and everything associated with it. But in a larger medical device company, um, you know, we have individuals that specialize in user research, UI UX design, human factors, marketing and strategic marketing, uh, you know, marketing communications, like you have so many more specialized people that as a PM where you're inherently like a generalist or in my role, like as a clinical person where you're focusing much more on like that customer need across your entire portfolio. Um, it is, it is a challenge to kind of figure out how you collaborate with all these different functions that have more overlap with you than say like traditional engineering. Um, and that I think, again, it's different company to company and team to team, but it's an important thing to figure out because again, you need to have that trust in your cross-functional partners that they are doing the right thing and that they need to know and trust that you're doing the right thing. And together, you know, we can be honest with each other, provide feedback based on our expertise and, and align on, you know, the right, uh, drumbeat we should all be marching to. So I think those are some of the challenges I've had. Um, really nothing I could say that I dislike about the job um i have had problems with working remotely but you know that's just that's more just i think an in general thing <laughs> yeah no fair fair I, I like how you you frame it as as challenges you know because like challenges are something you can grow from whereas like framing things as dislikes is like sort of resigning yourself to fate you know like resigning yourself to like something that's unchangeable so i, I really like how you frame that actually great Great way it's a subtle mindset thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, mindset goes a long way. Uh, Damien, I know you had a few questions to ask as well. So, yeah. So, 
I mean, Fouad got to have his little party with the product stuff. So that means <laughs> something that I have um, a personal vested interest in um, is the whole med tech sector. And there's a lot kind of like happening with that now. Um, there's a bunch of things I want to talk about, but what makes you so excited about that whole sector? Yeah. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I, my, my uh, corrective surgery experience and the patient journey that I had as a child uh, really impacted the way that I appreciate medical innovations and healthcare as a whole. Um, one of the stories that I think really drives it home whenever I reflect on it. So, so when I had my eye surgeries when I was in uh, elementary school, um, they left a, so, so to for, you know, provide a little context, I have, have you ever gone to the eye doctor and you know, they wave their finger left, right, up, down, you're supposed to follow it with your eyes and track it, right? Kind of nod if you know what I'm talking about. When, yeah, you, yeah. when, they, raise that, <laughs> when they raise that finger up, right? you raise your brows and you follow it with your eyes. I didn't have the muscles and nerves that allowed me to do that. So I would need to tilt my head all the way back up. And the problem with that was that as I got older, um, eventually my lids would continue to droop until I wasn't able to open my eyes. So it was a very, um, it was very unique, but also a very high risk issue that I had and was blessed to have parents that fought to find the right, healthcare providers to address it from a young age. So I've had multiple eye surgeries um, and I'm extremely fortunate to have had the right set of corrective procedures to address this issue. But, you know, one of the experiences that I'll never forget when I was a little kid, um, you know, these surgeries left me very bruised and I was scared to look at myself in the mirror, right? I didn't really recognize myself because I just had all this bruising. I couldn't blink either. So I couldn't like close my eyes after the surgery because my lids were paralyzed. So I'd have to put drops in. I have to sleep with a mask. It was just a very, very painful process for a child. Um, and I remember my father put towels over all the mirrors in the house so that no one could see themselves. Cause I couldn't look at myself in the mirror, right. I, without, without crying and, um, and then, you know, upsetting my eyes. So I was really, really, you know, reflecting on that, thinking about, you know, not just the, the technology that allowed me to have the surgery, right. I mean, obviously, first and foremost, am so grateful for the medical professionals and the technologists that made it possible for me to have that kind of corrective procedure. But also thinking about, you know, like the entire healthcare experience that somebody goes through from finding out they have, you know, whatever their diagnosis is to getting ready for a surgery or something like that, or, you know, a big um, operation or undertaking in, in their own personal health. Um, and then the outcome, right? I mean, the, the rehabilitation they need to go through, the process of recovery and healing, and then how that all intersects with their daily life and everything else they do. So I love the, you know, the ability to impact somebody's life, both in the hospital and in the, you know, in their, in every other aspect of their life that working in healthcare provides. And I think when we begin to reframe our understanding of healthcare from just being like a clinical experience to something that really is fundamental to the way we live, um, we start to see all these incredible avenues to improve the quality of care um, in this world because we um, have a, lot, a long way to go, I think, in, in making that you know, both at, you know, optimal and equitable um, and doing everything that we can do to support those people. So I am, am deeply passionate about the healthcare, uh, healthcare space. Wow, holy shit. Um... That's a crazy thing to go through as a kid. And I just want to say a quick shout out to your dad for being such an amazing human being um, for, you know, for doing that. Um, it really, 
is very evident when people have this passion that really bleeds into the things that they're doing and I can tell that you know from the experiences that you've had you're able to do so with not only passion but you know with a lot of empathy too for um, not only like what you're doing but you you know how your work is going to pan out you know how it's going to affect like everybody else that's going to be able to benefit um, from the advancements that you make with your work and you know is does that sound like that fits into the work that you're doing at Johnson & Johnson right now? Yeah, I think the work that, that I get to do, something that's very unique is um, designing for surgeons, right? I mean, the technology that we're building, the, the, the robotics uh, and solutions that we're bringing to market are designed to augment the capabilities of surgeons who I think, again, are the real superheroes in a lot of, uh, a lot of medicine and, and just obviously, you know, everyone who you meet knows somebody or has some experience of uh, generally a procedure that changed their life or, um, you know, saved their life or something like that. And I think these, they, you know, putting the best tools in their hands to give them the, the capabilities to do their job the way they can do it um, is to me is like a magical thing, right? I mean, you're really giving them the superpower that they need to go out and, and save people. So I really think, you know, that it delivers on a lot of the things that I love I will say one thing that I do also love um, in a different way is working directly with patients. Uh, I got that a lot when I was working in rehabilitation um, with, you know, exobionics and the research that I was doing with uh, virtual reality and prosthesis training. Um, and I think like there is definitely a, a different experience when you're working directly with a patient versus working with a provider, a caregiver, a surgeon. I think they are both extremely rewarding and valuable experiences in very different ways. Um, and, I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to do both and, um, you know, definitely plan on continuing to uh, deepen my understanding of working with surgeons and healthcare providers and all the challenges and nuances that come with that and speaking their language and understanding their needs. Um, but do one day hope to, uh, you know, return to working with patients in a more direct capacity. Do you think that um, for individuals working in your field or like in that, in this intellectual space should be charged with, um, having those both experiences, working both with um, the HCPs and the and the patients, maybe um, I, you know I can't say it's it's like a must have. I mean, it's been a very very important thing for me in terms of developing empathy. But in the field or in the functional area that I'm in, I think that empathy is is really key. Not that empathy isn't key in a lot of the other areas, but I think. Um, you know, you can be an outstanding uh, contributor to great products by understanding one clinical space very, very well. And again, it is no, by no means am I saying I understand every patient experience and every clinical space that a surgeon works in. I mean, you know, we, you know, the product that we have on the market, for example, um, the Monarch platform, which is doing diagnostic and therapeutic bronchoscopy. So, you know, looking deep in the lungs for lung cancer, navigating to those uh, peripheral nodules, taking samples, uh, you know, providing surgeons continuous vision. We're working with, you know, like, inter you know, we're working with people that, that are in the lung cancer space, thoracic people. Um, you know, I'm not working with orthopedic surgeons. I'm not working with, you know, like uh, your primary care physicians. And all those needs are so different. And I'm just, you know, spitballing different, different names here, you know, vice versa. When I was over on the patient experience side, I worked with, you know, we worked with amputees and spinal cord injury and stroke survivors, but I didn't work with cancer patients, right? Like there's just so much in this world 
in terms of like building empathy and experience that I, I think it would be unfair and reductionist for me to say like, you need mm. empathy, you need to, you know, have worked with everyone in order to be effective at any of these roles. I think it takes a long time to become, you know, competent, let alone an expert in one of these clinical fields. It's why, you know, doctors and, um, you know, caregivers are so specialized is because it is really hard to become an expert at something that complicated, let alone, you know, be able to broad stroke at all and uh, understand the needs of a variety of people. But I think that is one reason I have so much respect for people when they say they've been, you know, in healthcare or medical device or something like that for 10, 20 years, right? I mean, it, it shows a, a very deep understanding of the way that space operates. And I think, again, it's just so much different than most other spaces. So, you know, that always does hit as like a, a really impressive like wow factor. You know, you really must get it if you've been there doing it for that long. For sure. Um, it seems like the whole like field of healthcare and, you know, by extension, health tech is considering the rate of progress, of growth, of innovation, of um, other tech-bound industries, it seems like healthcare and health tech have been lagging behind for quite some time. But you know, thankfully, we're starting to see that slowly start to ramp up a bit more as we see um, adoption of some of these newer technologies within the space. Um, that being said, is there any interesting tech that you perhaps have your eyes on in the space right now? Yeah, um, I'd say that the two, you know, at the broadest level, it's AI and VR. Um, mm. And I think when I say AI, you know, everyone kind of talks AI for healthcare, this and that, right? And everybody loves the example of AI's ability to, you know, recognize things and diagnose stuff. And, you know, you see all these fancy articles, but I think there is so much potential for AI to scale the expertise of doctors. And what I mean, what I mean by that is like, it gives you the ability to bring the knowledge and learnings of top, uh, you know, top healthcare providers in New York, San Francisco, wherever you're thinking and scale that globally uh, by using AI. So I don't think it's about replacing the doctors. It's about equipping everyone with that expert level knowledge and that expert level decision-making and, and capability. And then over on the VR side, um, you know, a lot of individuals working on VR for training and learning and, um, you know, different outcome-based uh, outcome-based applications. You know, they want to improve the way that people learn in, um, in healthcare. They want to improve the way that we experience things in healthcare, the way that we train to do things in healthcare. So we've seen uh, VR be effective in everything from, you know, surgical training in order to use a new complex system um, over to being able to use VR to prepare a patient for an experience that they're going to have, um, you know, when going through a new procedure or going into a new, um, a new office space or something like that. So, you know, for example, there's a, a company I love, um, founded by some incredible guys, but uh, it's called Icona, and they're doing uh, VR, again, for kind of learning. Um, and they prepare patients uh, in VR for what kidney dialysis is going to look like, right? And you think about, like, being able to show somebody what that experience is going to be before they have to make decisions about their care, I think is super empowering. So those are some of the technologies that I'm looking out for. I love that you talked about AI like in the sense of like extending that expertise. And I think it actually relates to VR so much in the form of like telemedicine, because like, you know, one of the proponents of telemedicine is like, you know, taking that like localized expertise in New York or San Francisco or, you know, whatever like elite hospitals exist and being able to bridge that gap between people who can access that in person and people who can't. And, you know, it's an interesting time, especially now because, you know, with COVID, like so many things are coming online. And I think 
there's such a like overlap in not only like you know using AI to like train models on that like specific knowledge, but also using VR to bring that knowledge like directly into people's homes. You know, like being able to talk to an expert, being able to like visual visualize somebody's like you know particular areas of their body and like you know have somebody even complete an operation from like miles and miles away which i think is so so incredible that's something i'm super yeah there's uh if you want to talk about completing operations from miles miles away i want to plug uh corindus vascular robotics they're a a cool robotics company out of uh waltham mass and they uh they were acquired by siemens but they did a long distance teleoperation so they have a you know a robotic system that is controlled via a cockpit. So a surgeon is, you know, away from the patient side, controlling the robot. It's, you know, master slave type relationship. And the, you know, the, the outputs, the end effectors at the, at the patient side are actually doing the operation with the input from the surgeon. Um, and they did that over a long distance um, using that robot with a 5G network. So, you know, being able again awesome. to scale the expertise of, you know, of surgeons leveraging technology that have been developed outside of med tech and bring them in like you mentioned, Damien, I mean, you know, healthcare moves slower and it has to date, but I think we're seeing a lot of outstanding application of this technology and where some of these really, really cool technologies, I think are really going to find their, their killer application, if you will. I think like another interesting thing to keep in mind is as we kind of progress, as we gain these new advancements, with it comes this whole suite of like ethical quandaries that we have to address. And some, some of these ethical dilemmas are kind of impeding the adoption of um, some of these new like new novel technologies within the space. Um, it was interesting, actually. I was reading like a study looking at the um, like perception, public perception of AI within the healthcare space. And, you know, you, uh, Henry, you kind of touched on how um, cer- certain like AI um, systems have been able to um, diagnose certain conditions better than their respective like healthcare professionals would have been able to. Um, despite uh, knowing this, um, certain like, a lot of patients were still willing to go with the um, human-physician interaction, despite um, kind of assuming this certain level of risk where you may not be getting this, the, the exact best level of care that um, the AI may have been able to provide you, for example. And, you know, that this public perception is another one of those like uh, things that we have to address moving forward before we can see proper adoption of um, some of this technology in the space. Yeah. The way I think about it is like, so I, th- I think about it as being kind of universal across industries, right? Think about education. Like when you guys were in high school or middle school, did you have Chromebooks or those little laptops? You know what I'm talking about? Nah. But like nah. we, we got those kind of right at the tail end of my high school. They started rolling out like little laptops that just, you know, access the internet for kids to use for assignments in school and take notes and access resources. It was a really cool program. And I remember like I was very involved in education policy and advocacy. Like I mentioned, I wanted to go into politics at one point, but uh, I was very involved in that stuff throughout middle and high school. And, you know, you saw like this excitement over education technology. It's going to be the you know new crazy thing. We're going to equip every kid with, you know, laptop, iPhone, iPad, VR, cyborg, right? Like they're going to be this <laughs> learning machine. Um, and, you know, you saw like, a, you know, this, this increase in adoption of education technology. Everybody wanted it. And then what happens when everybody has it, right? And it's not as cool anymore. So first all the, you know, well-resourced places with a lot of money get the technology and then it starts to become ubiquitous. And then the places with resources are like, oh, you know, no, we want the, you know, we want the human teaching it. We want the, the you know, we want them learning from, from the teacher. We want it to be fed to them on a silver platter, right? Like then they don't want the technology. 
and in you know self-driving, right? You know, everyone thinks it's cool and everybody wants it, but I would suspect, and you know, I'm no fortune teller or you know investment analyst, but I'd say that when they become ubiquitous, the rich people are going to want humans driving, right? Like it's just it seems to be the trend where you want the technology, and then when it's ubiquitous, the people with either the money or like you know the the, the status want the human. And I think it's in the same way in healthcare right now. It's like you know everybody kind of wants the 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 better care with the with the robot and with the the ai and the mm -hmm. vr whatever it is but there still is this this huge emphasis on maintaining the human at the center of it all and i think that's something that um you know a lot of companies are doing very very well in what we do at you know j and j with our digital solutions and robotics right now if you look at the product and products that we have on the market the surgeon is in the driver's seat Right. It is not an it's not like a when people hear robotics, they think like the robots just going haywire and operating on them as they want. It's a surgeon in control. They have a, you know, an Xbox looking controller and they're driving this thing. Um, so keeping humans at the center of that process and using technology as a collaborative uh, collaborative tool rather than a replacement, um, I think is going to be super important to allowing that technology to get adopted and ramp up its uh its scale and its impact. No, I completely agree. And I think that's an important point to make. Uh, it's a good, an important thing to keep in mind too. I don't think physicians are going anywhere. Uh, certain people have, you know, I don't know, started fear mongering that, oh, you know, AI is going to take over. That we're not going to have any more doctors or nurses. There's going to be these robots in the hospitals and whatnot. And I don't think that's true. You know, and like you said, Henry, I think everybody does want that, that human connection. At the end of the day and that's one thing that is uniquely us and you know tech just won't be able to provide that yeah no, oh, yeah. totally yeah. totally agree i agree with the point about like you know when things become ubiquitous too because like yeah like that that's so true like when when some when someone realizes that everyone else can access it it loses its premium right and i think ultimately the most premium thing you can have is that human interaction like humans love that human interaction like i, I don't think anybody would rather have their pizza made by like some you know, like, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but like in, in downtown Toronto, they have this where it's literally like a, a pizza vending machine type of thing yeah. where you like, you know, you put your order in, you pick your toppings and it's like a completely automated like metal box and then your pizza just comes out and it's like fresh, like ready-made, baked, you know, exactly the specifications. But like, you know, that versus, you know, rich tourists going to like Southern Italy and getting like, you know, the premium ingredients hand woven and all that. Like, I think it's just obvious that like that human interaction will always be at a premium. And it's important that technology, you know, realizes that and tries to incorporate that rather than just trying to replace it. You know what I mean? It's the whole experience. You know, we want the experience, not just the product. Um, so just, a, I guess like a little fun question, um, like a fun little penultimate question, like I guess before asking our favorite final question, um, if you were charged with delivering a TED talk, what would you talk about? I'd tell students that their additional major is bullshit. Maybe and minor? No, additional major. Additional major, okay. Yeah, maybe minor too. Your minor could be, your minor could not be worth anything. Um, and before <laughs> I say that, everybody gets mad at me. All, you know, all the students doing two majors, I am not taking a, ch a shot at you. What I'm taking a shot at is the fact that colleges have convinced us and put us into like yet another rat race of it's not enough to just have one major, right? Two majors will make you more competitive and more marketable and X, Y, and Z, right? You, you, you know, I remember you look in high school when I was in my first year of high school, um, 
you know, it was a good thing to be taking like, you know, a couple AP classes and you see it kind of change and grow where it's like, okay, more and more people are taking the honors classes. So we got to add more AP classes and then, you know, more people take the AP class. So we got to add different class. Like it's always going to be, it's always been this thing of like trying to differentiate yourself and stand out from the crowd, which I completely understand and get. And I see why people pursue multiple majors. And look, if you are pursuing multiple majors because you love every class in both majors, that's awesome. My proposed alternative, what I'm saying is like when you're in college, again, you have this golden pass to explore anything you want, right? And we talked about this a little earlier, but I think of classes and the coursework that we take on kind of a, a, an X and Y axis. And I think like if you think of the X axis as the amount of time the class takes you, right, all the way on the left being no time at all, super, you know, super non-time intensive, and on the right being it takes a lot of time. And then the y-axis being the value it adds, right, to you and, and your personal development and your learning. Um, the sweet spot, again, is obviously like you want to have high-value classes and optimize the amount of classes you're taking that are high-value, um, whether they take a lot of time or a little bit of time. And the problem is, again, you have a finite amount of time. So if you think about it, in your major, I encourage everybody to go back and look at their majors. If you finished school or if you're in school now, look at the classes on there and try putting them on that map and say, like, which classes in my major are actually adding high value to my development? I could identify four or five in my primary major for sure, but I can also identify a lot that were not adding a ton of value. I had courses that I just didn't really fit into the world that I wanted to go in, right? I was working more with robotics and products. I wasn't working as much on like the thermal fluids, you know, dynamic side of things. So those classes really weren't as relevant to me and I didn't find a lot of value. And the problem is sometimes too is when you get yourself into the conundrum of having low value classes that take a lot of time, right? That bottom right corner is not where you want to be. So the problem is I think when you map out your primary major, right? You're everyone, it's inevitable of being a well-rounded person. You're going to have to take classes that just don't meet your value versus time um, optimization well. And when you take on two majors, right? In the spirit of learning more and being interdisciplinary and maximizing your growth, I think you're actually hurting yourself because you're signing on to yet another rigid set of requirements where you're going to have some high value classes, but also a lot of low value classes and high time classes that don't add a ton of value. And I think that time could be better spent. You know what? If there's four classes in an additional major of 12 classes that you want to take, just take the four classes. Like no one cares if you have that second major. So mm -hmm. I, I would say, you know, one major, awesome. You're getting a major in something that you care about. That's great. Use your time then wisely to optimize for courses or experiences, right? Internships, research, clubs and activities, personal pursuits that are high value, right? That's where you want to be. So I would say like, if I had to give a Ted talk, I, I, I would talk about that problem. Um, and, you know, bringing people in by kind of telling them, you know, maybe you want to rethink that additional major and two minor schedule that you've laid out for yourself. Because that was me at one point. And I, I went down that road just to kind of realize, like, I am spending a lot of time on things that are not adding a ton of value. And that time can be better spent elsewhere. Yeah, that, that's so great. Like, I don't know, man. I, I'm a huge proponent of like the liberal arts college model of learning. Like in Canada, we have this like very specific program system where like, you know, you get into a specific program at a university. Like I got into like my program as like a biomedical engineer and I was a 17 year old kid 
who had no idea what biomedical engineering was, right? Who had never taken an engineering class, who didn't have any engineers in my family. And so like for me to be choosing, you know, to be a biomedical engineer at age 17 with no experience in it makes zero sense. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I don't have any regrets with like what I chose. And I think it was a great journey and like a great way of self-reflecting and things like that. But like what you said about, you know, if there's four courses you want to take, take those four courses. Don't worry about your major. Your major should mean nothing. You know, your experiences, your like what you actually learn, what you take out of those classes, like those are the things that add value to you. And those are the things yeah. that you want to be taking away with you from university. You know, your network, your peers, like, like research experience you've done, internships you've done. And none of those depend on like the letters on your degree. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and look, I mean, you need, I, I get it. You need a degree. And a lot of times you need a very specific degree. If you want to be an engineer, you need a piece of paper that says engineering generally. Again, it is a privilege to have the ability to pursue an engineering degree at a four-year university where you can say like, I want to be an engineer. Therefore I get this piece of paper. And I want to, mm -hmm. first of all, again, emphasize the amount of alternatives there are to that traditional college experience sure. where you still can maximize value with your time. But if you are fortunate enough to get to go to a university and it's an American university where we do encourage a bit more of that general first year model and that general education baked into your coursework, um, I really encourage you like before you sign on for a second major or a minor with you know a rigid set of requirements, think about the classes that you're actually taking in that and do they are they really going to add more value than just taking a couple of extra classes from that program building your own additional studies right figuring out like these are the things i want to learn so i took classes in them and then i spent my extra time doing whatever i mean building relationships pursuing you know professional opportunities when i was a sophomore sorry yeah when i was a sophomore i took like i said a crazy um, sophomore spring in terms of my, my course load. And it was in pursuit of finishing uh, majors, minors, masters, all this stuff. Right. And I kind of realized like, why, what's the point? Who's going to give me a different job because I have an additional major in statistics. Like it, if I want to learn statistics because I think there's value in it, I'm just going to take the statistics classes that add value. And that's what I did. I did that with English. I did it with psychology. Like I got to take courses and things that I thought were interesting and round out my education. And at the same time, every semester I was in college, I was working. I was either a tour guide, a teaching assistant, a research assistant. I was doing external internships, sometimes all at the same time. And I got to do that because I got very good at optimizing my schedule to be both time time conscious where it needed to be right and then high value in as many ways as i could make it mm -hmm. super great no thanks for touching on that uh we do have one last question for you since we're reaching near the end of our time it's become sort of a tradition uh damien i hope you don't mind if i i, I take i take it um, oh absolutely because, you know, I want to I want to contribute to this tradition as well. Um, <laughs> and so we asked this question on our last interview. and We were planning on asking on every interview. But uh, the question is, if you could rent out a billboard that millions of people would see and you can cater this to like, you know, any audience you want. It can be the general public, it can be students, maybe like young professionals, whatever you whatever you think is, is uh, best for your message. Uh, what message would you put on this billboard? Hmm. Or you can take as long that, as you need to think. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a challenge. What message I put on that billboard. It's a cop out to go with the quote I gave earlier about how you do anything is how you do everything. But yeah, I think it would. I think it would. I, I would want to center it again around being the master of your own destiny. Um, 
I would want to, first of all, I probably would want to go with a picture or something visual because I, you know, I enjoy that more than I would want to see a quote on my thing. So I can't draw and that'll kind of get me out of uh, how to, having to design the billboard myself. But I think again, the big thing is like, there is, there's no one path to the place you want to be. And no matter where you see yourself in the future, when you get there, you're going to have to envision the next future for yourself, right? You're always, you always are moving forward. And so being intentional with your time, with your decisions, um, the relationships you build, where you invest your energy, um, and, and learning to master that would be my, my billboard message. I'd probably use characters from Avatar, the last airbender to tell it, honestly, that's yeah, like, that is, beautiful. that is the show, the show of, of all shows, shows of all to, time. Uh, yeah, yeah. To talk about kind of reconciling who you are, being true to yourself and, uh, and, and getting on the path that you want to be. But I, um, I definitely, definitely think like it's all, it's all about controlling that mindset, choosing the way you want to live your life and, uh, and, and making your decisions around that. I think one of the things that I really learned is that you can see clarity of thought in a person. Um, when you hear them speak, when you meet them and then you ask them about their experiences and, and the things they're interested in, like you can see when people have a clear understanding of who they are and why they make the decisions they make. And that doesn't always mean they make better decisions or, or good or right decisions. It just means they make decisions that are consistent with their values and their guiding principles. Um, and so learning to look within yourself to find the answers about why you make decisions and then portraying that and reflecting that to the world um, in your decision making is I think the, you know, the thing that I would want to put on that billboard in some very, very abstract art form that I can't make. <laughs> Amen to that. Um, so Henry, thank you so much for this incredible conversation and the incredible insights that you've been able to um, help deliver to us today. Um, do you have any final thoughts you want to throw out there, Fawad? No. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> you didn't go to no. me, but I'll just say thank you guys so much for having me on. <laughs> yeah, no. That, I mean, no, no final thoughts. Uh, although I will end it with a quote that Damien always says, like, um, you know, in a way, you, you were talking about how, like, you, you can't design these billboards and stuff. But, you know, with the network you've built, uh, Damien always likes to say, friends are better than skills because a friend with a boat is better than having a boat. You know what I mean? Like if you have friends and if you have a network that can, that can do the things you want to do and you can draw upon that for the resources you need, you don't need to be able to design that billboard. You know, you can just call up a friend that, that can do it for you. Um, <laughs> That's so, the goal. If you know a good designer, let me know. For sure. Um, so yeah. Um, thank you so much for, for talking today, Henry. Uh, it was super, super great conversation. I think we all derived a ton of value from it. And hopefully the audience does too. Um, and we'll definitely stay in touch because we'd love to have you again on the show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. And for anyone who's listening, Henry Peck, H-E-N-R-Y-P-E-C-K, if you see it spelled, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I love meeting new people, uh, talking and hearing about your experiences and sharing mine. So uh, feel free to connect and um, we can have a conversation. Amazing. All right. Have a good night, everyone.